Okay, we're going to be reading the entirety of Acts 21 this morning. And as you're turning there, um, how many of you, uh, as you're going through your Bible, you write in them, mark in them, underline them, highlight them? Well, I've got a, this is one of the first Bibles I've ever had. And so through that time, I've, I've written in it, marked in it. And well, I got it years ago, and it's one of the easier reading Bibles. So it's not the, the best version that I would like to, but it's the one that I've been in, and it's the one where my marks are. And as I read through those scriptures, it's kind of like old familiar territory. And so I keep it because I like it. It's, you know, it's kind of an old friend. But unfortunately, it's not a version that matches exactly the, what you have. So normally I print out the version, and I had it printed out this week. And this morning as I was moving some papers, I thought those papers were for something else I was doing earlier in this week. So you're going to a little bit of trouble following along this morning. So I apologize, but know that I'm reading out of my old friend here. And so that's what we have. it. But we're going to read uh, Acts 21. After saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, we sailed straight to the island of Kos. The next day we reached Rhodes and went to Patra. There we boarded a ship sailing for Syria, the province of Phoenicia. We sighted the island of Cyprus, passed it on our left, and landed at the harbor of Tyre and Sarah, where the ship was to unload. We went ashore and found the local believers and stayed with them a week. These disciples prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. When we returned to the ship at the end of the week, the entire congregation, including the wives and children, came down to the shore with us. There we knelt and prayed and said our farewells. Then we went aboard and they returned home. The next stop after leaving, Tyre, was Prolopis. We were greeted with the brothers and sisters, but stayed only one day. Then we went on to Caesarea and stayed at the home of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven men who had been chosen to distribute food. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. During our stay of several days, a man named Abacus, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. When he visited us, he took Paul's belt and bound it his own feet and hands with it. Then he said, The Holy Spirit declares, So shall the owners of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Romans. When we heard this, we who were traveling with him, as well as the local believers, begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But he said, Why is all this weeping? You're breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but also to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. When it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said, The will of the Lord be done. Shortly afterward, we packed our things and left for Jerusalem. Some believers from Caesarea accompanied us, and they took us to the home and us. A man who originally from Cyprus is one of the early disciples. All the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem welcomed us cordially. The next day, Paul went in with us to meet with James, and all the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. After greetings were exchanged, Paul gave a detailed account of the things God had accomplished among the Gentiles through this ministry. After hearing this, they praised God, but they said, You know, my dear brothers, how many thousands of Jews have also believed, and they all take the law of Moses very seriously. Our Jewish Christians here at Jerusalem have been told that you are teaching all the Jews living in the Gentile world to turn their back on the laws of Moses. They say that you teach people not to circumcise their children or to follow other Jewish customs. Now what can be done? For they will certainly hear that you have said, Come. Here's a suggestion. We have four men here who have taken a vow and are preparing to shave their heads. Go with them to the temple and join them in the purification ceremony and pray for them to have their head shaped. 
then everyone will know that the rumors are false and that you yourself observe the Jewish laws. As for the Gentile Christians, Christians, all we ask of them is what we had already told them in a letter. You should not eat the food offered to idols or consume blood or eat the meat from strangled animals, and they should stay away from sexual immorality. So Paul agreed to their request, and the next day he went through the purification ritual with the men and went to the temple. He publicly announced the date when their vows would end and sacrifices would be offered for each of them. The seven days were almost ended when some of the Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul in the temple and roused a mob against him. They grabbed him, yelling, Men of Israel, help, this is the man who teaches against our people and tells everybody to disobey the Jewish laws. He speaks against the temple, and he even defiles it by bringing Gentiles in it. For earlier that day they had seen him in the city with Trophimus, a Gentile from Ephesus, and they assumed Paul had taken him into the temple. The whole population of the city was rocked by these accusations, and a great riot followed. Paul was dragged out of the temple, and immediately the gates were closed behind him. As they were trying to kill him, the word reached the commander of the Roman regiment that Jerusalem was in uproar. He immediately called out his soldiers and officers and ran down among the crowd. When the mob saw the commander and the troops coming, they stopped beating Paul. The commander arrested him and ordered him bound with two chains. Then he asked the crowd who he was and what he had done. Someone shouted one thing and some shouted another. He couldn't find out the truth in all the uproar and confusion. So he ordered Paul to be taken into the fortress. As they reached the stairs, the mob grew so violent the soldiers had to lift Paul and the soldiers to protect him, and the crowd following behind shouting, Kill him, kill him. As Paul was about to be taken inside, he said to the commander, May I have a word with you? Do you know Greek? the commander asked, surprised. Aren't you the Egyptian who led a rebellion some time ago and took 4,000 members of the assassins out into the desert? No, Paul replied. I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia which is an important city. Please let me talk to the people. The commander agreed, so Paul stood on the stairs and motioned the people to be quiet. Soon a deep silence enveloped the crowd, and he addressed them in their own language, Aramaic. Please be seated. Good morning. Good to see everybody here this morning. It's good to have the word open before us this morning, once again. We are in new and yet familiar territory. Uh, New on one hand in that we have been the last eight weeks in the book of Ephesians. So we're in a new portion of scripture. But familiar in that we are coming back to this wonderful book uh, from last summer. And hopefully we will be taking the remainder of our summer this year to work through the end of the book of Acts. So as we uh, begin this morning, I'm going to ask if you would to to join me in a word of prayer. Father, we have your word open before us this morning and and we ask, Lord, that you would teach us your statutes, teach us what you would desire for us to know, teach us your ways, Lord. Pray that you would teach us through your servant Paul here in the text what it is to live for Jesus. Teach us to be content with your will even when suffering and trials come our way. And Father, we pray that you grant us grace to be able to deal with suffering as a vessel of honor. Take these words this morning, plant them deep in us that we might know them, that we might live them, that we might share them with others. 
Father, I'm praying for your word to be glorified, to be exalted, to be praised among your people this day. I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, today we continue together in the word on a journey that actually began back in the summer of 2012. Just out of curiosity, how many of you were here in the summer of 2012? Okay, good number of you were. Excellent. Well, starting in June of 2012, we covered the first six chapters of the book of Acts, the ministry in Jerusalem. And in the summer of 2013, then, we covered chapters 7 through 12, which encompassed the ministry in Judea and Samaria. Last summer, we worked our way from Acts 13 all the way to Acts 21, verse 17, We got Paul to Jerusalem last summer, and we left him there. We talked a lot last summer about his missionary journeys, and it was a joy to be able to read through those three missionary journeys and to see what God did in and through Paul, through his ministry, and through the lives of those that he encountered in the Mediterranean world. Well, today is part four of the Acts journey, as Paul will be making his trip to Rome, And for those of you who like to make progress in the text, you'll find that this study, uh, this summer, is going to cover large segments of text. Now, coming out of Ephesians, where we studied the pieces of God's armor, we covered pretty much one verse or portions of one verse at a time. But here in Acts, what we're going to see is that we're going to encounter several narratives and These narratives are going to describe the trials and and the happenings of Paul the prisoner. That's really going to be the theme of these next several weeks looking at Acts. Paul the prisoner. Even as of today, we'll see Paul being arrested. And throughout the remainder of the book of Acts, we're going to see Paul as prisoner. So as you read the rest of Acts, read it through the lens of... Paul, the prisoner, okay? We're we're going to notice and see here in the text that up to this point in Acts, Paul has been able to preach the gospel relatively unchained. There have been occasions, Philippi would be an example, where he was in prison for a period of time. But really, Paul had freedom to go about and preach the gospel In large part, and these closing chapters in Acts are going to show Paul in chains, bound for Rome. As a means of jumping into the narrative today, I need to to catch up with you on what's happening. Now some of you, if you've been diligent and you've read through the entire book of Acts of late, you already maybe know some of this. Those of you who have not been as diligent perhaps in reading through the entirety of the book of Acts... I'd like to just catch you up to speed. I think when you jump into a book two-thirds of the way, it's important to have some understanding of where we are. So, really, as I was thinking about it, I was was thinking of reuniting with a a friend that maybe you haven't seen in a while. Some of you probably have friends that you haven't seen in a while. And when you get together with them, It's enjoyable, isn't it, to be able to hear how they're doing and to be able to share what has been going on in your life and this 
friendship that you've established, if they are good friends, it doesn't take you long to just be able to share and talk with one another. And I think in some ways, here we are in Acts 21, and I think it's a reuniting, it's a coming back together of speaking to what has been going on in the life of Paul. It's been a year since we've been in Acts. It's a year since we left Paul in 21, verse 17. So by way of reminder and refresher, I think it's helpful to know that in Acts chapter 20, Paul is in Miletus and he's speaking to the Ephesian elders. It was there that they wept together and they prayed, if you notice at the end of chapter 20. They were weeping because Paul told them that he was going to Jerusalem and he wouldn't be coming back. They wouldn't see his face anymore. In fact, he says there to them in in Acts 20, he says that the Holy Spirit had testified that chains and tribulations awaited him. And yet Paul is still going to Jerusalem. At the beginning of Acts chapter 21, Paul is traveling with his companions and they finally make their way to Caesarea where they stay with Philip, the evangelist. And after staying a few days there, a certain prophet, you might remember the name Agabus, Agabus shows up and he takes Paul's belt and he ties it around his own hands and feet signifying what was about to happen to Paul upon entering Jerusalem. And you remember the people were crying out, Paul, don't go, Paul, don't go, don't go, Paul. Paul says, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? He said, for I am ready not only to be bound, but to die. I'm ready to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus, Acts 21, 13. And when his traveling companions saw that he would not be persuaded, verse 13 says that, verse 14, the will of the Lord be done. They packed their things and accompanied by some of the people in Caesarea, they make their way to Jerusalem where they lodge at the home of an early disciple named Nason. And upon arrival in verse 17, the brethren received Paul and company gladly. Note that, mark that. They were received when they arrived very warmly. It's helpful to, believe, to, to know here in the text who Paul is traveling with. Paul is not by himself here. If you turn to Acts 20 for just a moment, we see a list of folks who are actually with Paul right now. Sopater from Berea accompanied him to Asia and also Aristarchus and Secundus of Thessalonians, Gaius of Derbe, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. Trophimus, you might uh, uh, keep that in mind, Trophimus, because Trophimus' name is going to pop up here in the text for today. Trophimus from Ephesus, more than likely. These were his traveling companions. We also see in chapter 21, verse 16, there were some of the disciples from Caesarea that went with them to Jerusalem. And we also see in verse 18, when Paul goes in, it says, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, us. Church, who's the writer of this book? Luke. Luke is also here. Luke is also one of the companions. So you have a group of Maybe some eight to ten folks that are with Paul at this particular point in time as he comes into 
Jerusalem as he goes to meet with the elders in Jerusalem. There's another piece to the text that needs to be mentioned. And it's found in chapter 20, verse 16. It says, Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem. He was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. I think it's important to understand that the context of what we're reading here in chapter 21 is the feast Pentecost. People would have been traveling into Jerusalem. We need to also understand that there were many, many people in Jerusalem already at this particular point in time. And the feast really provided an opportunity for even further crowds to gather. What we're reading about in Acts 21, 18 and following comes at this time, in this period of Pentecost. And so Jews from the surrounding nations would be thronging to the holy city. We also need to understand contextually, nationalism is high. Loyalty to the temple, loyalty to the commandments of Moses would have captured the attention of crowds that gathered in the holy city during this particular time. And so you enter into this picture a band of Gentile believers with Paul leading the way. Friction, tension, starts to rise to the surface. There's one other piece that I'd like to put forward here that's helpful in understanding the text. You know, perhaps you're wondering why. I think it's good to ask the question, why is Paul headed to Jerusalem? Why is he going? I believe there are three good reasons why he's going to Jerusalem. One, he's there to deliver the gifts, financial gifts, right? From the, the Gentile churches to the Jewish brethren who are, who are poor. I believe secondly, he's there to work on relationships, work on unity between the Gentile church and the Jewish church. I believe thirdly, he's there to testify, and that's what we see here right up front in the text today. He's there to testify to what God has done through their third as second and third, for that matter, missionary journeys in Asia and the Mediterranean. It's been approximately four to five years since Paul has been in Jerusalem. We need to also remember this context with the context that we have for the book as a whole. You know, anytime we're reading one of the books of Scripture, it's important to know the big idea. And I think that last summer we hopefully grasped what that big idea was, but it's been a year. So Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is important for us to still know, to still have before us. And Jesus says in Acts 1 verse 8, before his ascension, he says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of of the earth. In Jerusalem, which encompasses chapters 1 through 7. In Judea and Samaria, which encompasses Acts 8 through 12. And to the end of the earth, which encompasses Acts 13 through 28. See, the gospel, friends, has been moving and will continue to move to the end of the earth. It's headed to Rome. 
When you arrive, if you go to the end of Acts, and you see in Acts 28, you see that Paul does eventually get to Rome. Not the way that he originally planned, not the way he originally hoped, but he does arrive in Rome. That's Luke's ending point for Acts. But trace the mission that's being put forth in the text. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, end of the earth. The gospel is moving through empowered vessels filled with the Holy Spirit who have surrendered their lives to the purpose and will of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts is showing what happens when followers of Jesus keep in step with the power of the Holy Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. This is what happens. On the timeline of history, we're in the first century A.D., As we take up Acts 21, we're right around 57 A.D. Three missionary journeys are completed. Churches have been planted. Elders have been established. And Christ's name has been exalted among the nations. Praise God. That's good news. Paul has encountered the spiritual forces of darkness we've been speaking of the last eight weeks. He's been in prison In Philippi, in particular, he's been stoned. He's been left for dead. He's been held up as a god. Remember that? (laughs) He's been threatened. And all the while, as we look at all these things that have happened, we need to also keep in mind Paul's personal theme given by the Lord Jesus himself. Acts chapter 9, 15 and 16 says, go for Paul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Keep that in mind. The Lord has called Paul to a particular task, a particular mission. And part of his task is that he's going to bear the name of Jesus and doing so, he's going to encounter suffering. Not many of us would like to hear the news. We're all for perhaps bearing the name of Jesus, but when we couple that with suffering, all of a sudden we don't like that too much. That's Paul's calling. That, he's a chosen vessel. He's a vessel of election. That's the literal translation. A vessel of election to do this very thing, to bear the name of Jesus. And he has done that among the nations. And now he's about to do that through the remainder of Acts. He's going to have opportunity to do that amongst kings, governors, dignitaries. He's going to have opportunity to share his testimony on various occasions with these kings. And here coming soon, he's going to have opportunity to share his testimony with the children of Israel as he stands on the stairs of the fortress of Antonia to give testimony. Today's text is a precursor to Paul bearing the name of Jesus before Israel. I want you to see the the rich threads and the themes and and the gospel work that's running through their course as we finish this book there are many threads and themes 
We're not simply reading a narrative. We're not simply reading a good story, church. Look for the touch points along the way. Ask of the Holy Spirit how he might desire to apply his word to your own life. And so with all of that as a means of setting the table for the meal, let's begin eating. Really, in many ways, it's important before we just dive into the text, and especially so up front, that we have some awareness of what's going on, some context before us. First of all, in 18, 19, and 20, there's a word of testimony. A word of testimony. It says, on the following day, so they arrived in verse 17, the brethren welcomed them gladly. On the following day, day two, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Now, a lot has gone on since his visit to Jerusalem, recorded back in Acts 15. Remember that Jerusalem council in Acts 15? The text has in mind here as he's speaking, sharing in detail... He greeted them. He told in detail. He told one by one. This is a very orderly account that Paul is making here of all that God has done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He's accounting these things that God has done. He's he's probably listing among the details the converts, the number of churches, the places where these churches were planted, the trials that he encountered along the way. And I imagine as Paul shared, he probably brought forth Sopater, or he brought forth Gaius, or he brought forth Trophimus, he brought forth Timothy, and they too testified to James and the the elders who were meeting together. What a powerful word of testimony of what God's done. Church, there's great power in a word of testimony, is there not? Paul is sharing, notice what God had done. He's sharing what God had done. A word of testimony minus the God of the word is hollow. (laughs) A word of testimony that speaks only to self is nothing more than a self-testimony. It's not speaking about what God's done in your life. But a word of testimony that talks of God and what he has done, reminded of that chorus, he has done great things. He has done great things. Bless his holy name. For Paul, God had done some wonderful things. And he's recounting that. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 9, says, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. He says, have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death. I'm thinking those words might have been uh, very close to his heart here in just a moment as we make our way through Acts 21. But he says, 
You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. You see, Paul is sharing his word of testimony. And when James and the elders hear it, the text says that they glorified the Lord. That's instructive for us. When we hear a word of testimony, sometimes if we're not careful, we can be only about praising that person. What good things you did. Notice as James and the elders, they glorified the Lord. Paul was talking about what the Lord had done. And James and the elders praised the Lord for what he had done. We need to be quick to give credit to whom credit is due, church. Let's be quick to talk about and point to God. This God who is at work, who is moving in our midst. And so Paul shares this testimony. And it's important that they go on. They go on to share with Paul then, verse 21. And verse 20, excuse me. They're sharing after they give praise to the Lord. They say, hey, Paul, how many, I want you to look. You, you see, it's pretty evident. You've been here today, but I'm sure it's evident to you. you. You're able to see how many Jews there are who believed. There's been a harvest here too, Paul. Do you see this mutual encouragement happening? There's a mutual, this is wonderful, happening. They're able to praise God for what's going on. And these Jews who believed, they are all zealous for the law. The word zealous here uh, doesn't mean in the militant sense, but zealous, passionate for the law, which is interesting, and that's going to come into play here shortly. These believers... You see, the elders had more than just a word of testimony to share with Paul. The elders had some other things that they were going to share shortly with Paul that they needed to share with Paul. Some perhaps not so good news with Paul. (laughs) Some, Some words that would be helpful for him. But before we even get there, I think it's important to ask in this word of testimony, to ask you in particular, church, about your word of testimony. Perhaps today over the lunch tables, you can share together what God has done in your life, what God has been doing in your life as of late. Maybe you haven't traveled the Mediterranean sharing the gospel like Paul, but each one of you, listen, each one of you has a journey. Each one of you do. Some of you have been journeying a longer time than others. Some of you are just starting out on your journey. It's important to know that none of us are guaranteed a long journey. But we all have a journey to speak of, and it's intended to be shared. Are you sharing your word of testimony with others? Do you find you always have an update? You always have something to pass along to others pertaining to this God whom you serve. As days go by, are you accumulating pieces of God's story to communicate with other people? Are you being taught by God through his word? Has the Lord been revealing weaknesses in your life, areas of sin needing confessed, a word of truth that comes like a breath of fresh air in the time of need? 
See, the gospel moves in the book of Acts because there's a core group of committed people endued with power from on high who actually saw to it that being witnesses to Jesus meant something. It meant something. And we see the record in the book of Acts. It no doubt meant something. People laid their lives on the line for this Jesus whom they served. It meant living differently, acting differently, speaking differently. Friends, you too, if you are in Christ, have been endued with the same power from on high. The same power we're reading about here in Acts. If you're in Christ, you've been endued with that same power. What's the word of testimony coming from your heart, out of your mouth? Expressed in your walk. Manifested in your love for Christ and His church. I don't know about you, but I would love to have a ticket to this meeting here in Acts 21 and just to sit and listen to what Paul had to share. This word of testimony. First-hand account of how God coordinated and provided all along the way. Times when God showed up. I can imagine how he recounted the midnight earthquake in Philippi. Wouldn't you love to have heard that one? How God showed up. See, these words of testimony are powerful. They're encouraging to others. And hopefully they spur you on to walk by faith. Consider your own personal word of testimony, friends. What that looks like. James and the elders, they have more than a word of testimony to share with Paul in the text. They have some disturbing news to pass along, and yet they are willing to address it with this brother that they dearly love. And so we hear, I just labeled this second section, uh, word on the street. Word on the street. There's a word of testimony followed by word on the street. That's verses 21 through 26. You're familiar, I'm hoping, with that phrase, word on the street. For those of you that are not familiar with that phrase, I'll remind you of a passage of scripture where Jesus is walking the way with his disciples and he says, hey, he says, who do people say that I am? In other words, what's the word on the street about what people are saying about me? Who do people think that I am? Jesus says. What's the word on the street? What's circulating? What's going around about who I am? Jesus says. Well, James says that these believing Jews, zealous for the law, have been informed. Paul, these these Jews have been informed about you. Now, this word informed is very helpful for our further understanding. It comes from the word katakeo. It's a significant verb right here in the text. I I point it out just to say this. It's, It's the root of our English word catechize. It implies, therefore, that the process of educating public opinion in Jerusalem about Paul had been a diligent business. The Pharisaic party had taught the lesson persistently till their hearers were fully trained in it. And writer says, one writer speaking to this says, we can understand then the great hostility which the apostle experienced. They must have had their partisans at work in preparation for his visit and have poisoned men's minds against him. So the elders are saying, hey, there's a word that's been going out on the street. 
The word has it. It's not good. These people are being informed about you, Paul. What is it according to the text that these Jews had been catechized on regarding Paul? Well, the claim, according to the text, is that Paul was teaching Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. Now, no doubt that would have been upsetting to many of the Jews. Think about, in the midst of this, the difficult position that the elders in Jerusalem are in. Perhaps we don't think of the elders in Jerusalem a whole lot in this scenario. The elders in Jerusalem are ministering to the Jews in Jerusalem. They're supportive of Paul and his work, and yet also desiring to minister to the people in Jerusalem. Instead of doing nothing about the situation, they communicate with Paul what they know about the swirling word on the street. Paul's name is widely known, and his teaching is subject to criticism and hostility. So there's a greetings, Paul. Welcome. And then, brother, we need to tell you what the word is here. So the elders move from communicating the word on the street to taking action. What's the plan moving forward? Look look at the text. That's the question they ask after they relay what the word is on the street. What then? What then is to be done? Verse 22. The assembly must certainly meet. In other words, Paul, they're going to know you're here. They're going to meet together. They're going to find out that you're here. What, What needs to happen? Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed, catechized, concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly or by rule and keep the law. Now, it's important here. There are some details we don't know. There are these four men, these four men who were in the midst of a vow. And the instruction here by the elders is to take these four men upon himself to pay their expenses, to be purified with them, so that they may shave their heads. It's likely these men were a part of a Nazarite vow, which typically lasted the length of about 30 days. And so they may be coming to the close of their particular vow. Paul himself was to purify himself before taking upon these four men and paying and being a participant with these four men at the conclusion of this period of time. Question. Why would it be necessary for Paul to purify himself at this time? If you think about where Paul has been, Paul has been traveling the Gentile lands. And now he's in the holy city. Be very important for him, in fact, necessary for him before he takes on this vow to purify himself. According to the law in Numbers chapter 19, there were a couple particular days when there was water from sprinkling that would happen on day three and day seven of this purification process. What we see here in the text is mentioned here of a seventh day, which would have been the last day. 
in verse 27, which we'll get to here in just a moment, verse 26. It's important even in 25, James speaks of the Gentiles. And he's, he's speaking, he says, But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we've written and decided that they should observe no such thing. This goes back to Acts 15. Okay? Remember in Acts 15 what they decided on about the Gentiles? They were not going to require that the Gentiles first become Jews. <laughs> but, the, right? but they were going to put in writing, which Paul and company circulated to the many regions of the Mediterranean, letting them know, communicating, here is what came out of that meeting, the council in Jerusalem. Here are the requirements. And so he's simply repeating those requirements in verse 25. And I think James and the elders also wants, they want to voice, hey, nothing's changed in regard to what we're, what we're talking about in regard to the Gentiles. Nothing's changed. And so he reiterates these four things, right? They should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. That's, that's still, we're still good with that, Paul. We just want to voice that. Nothing's changed there in how we're going to deal with the Gentiles. So we have, we, have, we have these Jews who are in Jerusalem who are not Christians. We have Jews who are in Jerusalem who are Christians. And the Jews seem to be okay hanging out with each other in Jerusalem because the Jews that are Christians, according to what we read in the text, are zealous for the law. Keeping the law. They're still doing keeping the law as recorded in Moses. The teachings of the law. What becomes an issue is the intermingling of these Gentile Christians. So we have really almost three, three different groups of people, if you will. And you have the elders of Jerusalem who are kind of sitting right in the middle of this. Talk about a leadership position. Also keep in mind, it's estimated at this time that there were some 30 to 50,000 members of the Jerusalem church. I hope they had a lot of elders. <laughs> well, that's the context of what's going on. So the word on the street, they get the word on the street of what's happening. I think it's important here in this, in this passage to also ask the question, because some might be inclined here to ask the question, you know, how could Paul do this? How could, how could Paul agree? Because he's going to agree. He's going he's to move forward in what the elders are suggesting, putting forward. How could Paul do this? Doesn't this contradict what Paul is all about? Well, I think if, if you have that as a question, I think it's helpful for us to, to be able to, to see that the Scripture, uh, Paul himself, as he's writing, in fact, to uh, the church at Corinth in chapter 9, his first epistle, he says this, starting in verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ See, that was significant for Paul, understanding who he was in Christ. That I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. 
I've become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And here's the, here's the big picture for Paul. Verse 23. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be partaker of it with you. This is a passage that's very helpful for our understanding of what Paul is doing. In fact, I think that we could also, as a supplemental text to this, I'm not going to take time to read the entirety of it, but Romans 14 and 15 is also a passage that would be helpful. Because Paul here in 14 and 15 is speaking to the brethren about how we get along with other brothers, other brothers who might have differences. Does the church have differences? Are there different ways that that believers would choose to operate? Preferences? Matters of liberty, as he would say? I believe what Paul is, is doing here is simply a matter of liberty in an effort to win the Jews. In an effort for them to be able to see that I too am following the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something greater. There's something higher. I think Paul's pointing to. Paul is acting, and he does this throughout from Acts 9 forward. But here again is another example. Paul is acting not with a heart that's stubborn, but he's acting with a heart of humility. That characterizes the Apostle Paul, church. A heart of humility. A heart of preferencing, honoring another. That's Romans 12. That's what we see Paul doing here. He's not altering the gospel. He's not losing his salvation. He's not doing any of these things. He's simply being sensitive to the scruples of the weaker brothers. What's the word on the street today about this man Jesus? What are you hearing about Jesus nowadays? Who do people say that Jesus is today? Who do you say that he is? Do you know him? Do you know what he says in his word about himself? And how does this word on the street that you're hearing about Jesus, how does it impact you? Do you find yourself like the elders in Jerusalem church in a precarious situation because of Jesus and because of what's going on with the prevailing winds of people groups and what they're holding to tightly and not willing to let go for the cause and sake of Jesus Christ? Are you like Peter talking a courageous talk but at the end of the day operating in denial of who Jesus is? See, very few are holding up Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Lord, Jesus as Savior. Very few give airtime to the worship and praise of Jesus. Not many are living godly lives. Not many are exercising godliness. Not many are walking in obedience to the Word of God. So what are you doing when the word on the street is persecution toward the Christians? See, that's the real message that's being heard today. And perhaps it's not being heard here in Pendleton. Perhaps it's not being heard in Rushville or in Marion or or in Knightstown or or wherever else you may be up in Michigan. Perhaps it's not being heard there. But I do believe it's a voice that's being heard clearly enough through those who 
drive the, the massive machine called media. See, the word on the street is that a, a good number of people around us don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in his word. They don't believe in the necessity of gathering together on a Sunday morning. The word on the street is not a far cry from Romans chapter 9, which pictures Jesus as the stumbling stone, the rock of offense. So what then do you do about the word on the street that you're hearing? What do you do? Do you bury your head in the sand? Do you just wish it to all go away? Do you complain? Provide your own commentary about it? Do you sit back and take on the victim mindset? Woe is me. Or do you put on the whole armor like we just have been learning the last eight weeks? Put on the whole armor of God and pray and seek the Lord's wisdom for next steps. Lord, what would you have me do? Lord, how would you have me walk in light of the word on the street about who you are? Nehemiah, Nehemiah prays to God and he prays something that many of us probably wouldn't be bold enough to pray. Turn the reproach upon their own heads. Some of his prayers in the book of Nehemiah, I mean, they're just like, they're arrows. Their sin, their iniquity, their reproach. See, because they were all about provoking God, provoking God's people, and provoking God's work. The battle and the struggle is not against flesh and blood, is it, church? We see here in verses 27 through 30, a word from Asia. Yeah, we're in Jerusalem, but there's a word that comes from Asia. Drawing near to the expiration of the days of purification, Paul is in the temple. He finds himself in the temple. And he's spotted by the Jews from Asia. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, laid hands on him. Keep in mind that these Jews may have recognized Paul from his lengthy stay in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. This also explains the connection with Trophimus, who himself is from that area. They see Paul, they see Trophimus, they begin stirring up the whole crowd, and they lay hands on him. Notice the words that are coming from these Jews of Asia. They say, men of Israel, help! Now, usually when we say help, help, we're like really in need of somebody to rescue us. Here, that's not the way it's used. Help us in, hey, we're about, to, we're about to get rid of this guy. Help us, partner with us to rid ourselves of this man who is, as they go on to say, verse 27, 20, 28, this is the man who teaches all men everywhere. Let's stop right there. We already got a problem, don't we? This is a man who teaches all men everywhere. Do you see a little exaggeration there? See, that's what happens when people start trying to trump up things and, and brew trouble and cause friction. And call. We, we tend to speak in, in words of uh, uh, hyperbole, action. You know, this whole idea, this, we make it bigger than what it is. All men everywhere. What else does he say? He's teaching all men everywhere against the people. 
You know, if only those Jews from Asia could read Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. You see, the charge that's being put forward is that Paul is against their people. (laughs) Jewish people. That's not the Paul that I read about in the scripture. It keeps going. Against the law. He teaches all men everywhere against the people, against the law, and this place. The temple. You know, this sounds a lot like the charges that were trumped up against Stephen. They did the same thing with Stephen. They stoned him. But the charges were very similar. The Jews from Asia were spreading a word about Paul that's simply not true. In fact, they go on as though that weren't enough. They say, furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Again, nationalism at its peak right now. Feast time. Lots of people there. Lots of Jewish customs being upheld. And to hear that someone is defying the customs. Oh, there's a listening ear for this one. So he says right here, and look, look at the parenthetical note in verse 29. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Whom they what? Whom they supposed. Whom they supposed. Doesn't sound like they're too sure. See, they saw Trophimus with Paul. Whether they saw him with Paul in the temple, I, I highly doubt, because What we know to be true is that there were signs all around the temple. Signs that said to the effect that if you are not a Jew, if you're not one of us, putting that in quotes, and you enter in, you are subject to death. No questions asked. There were signs to that effect that were posted. I don't think Paul would put Trophimus in such a situation. And yet that's what's being submitted here. These Jews had gathered upon hearing these claims and they're ready to expel Paul from the temple and to take his life. Outsiders spreading a word about you. Ever been a recipient of an untrue word? Someone spreading words, scattering seeds of falsehood about you? How how do you handle that? Paul is not in any position currently to sit across the table and have a Bible study with them. To teach them what is true. His life right now is on the line. I think one of the things we do, church, is, is again taking a, a note from Nehemiah, is take it to the Lord in prayer. 
confronted with a band of, of mockers in the midst of God's people, Nehemiah prays, remember? He prays and he keeps on building. That's what he did. We see that verse 30, all the city was disturbed and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. The doors to the inner temple were shut. Didn't want any blood shed in the inner temple. So, we see now in verses 31 through 33, a word to the commander. Praise God, there was a word to the commander. As they were seeking to kill him, what were they seeking to do? Kill him. Text is pretty plain. They were seeking to kill him. A mob of people. As they were seeking to kill him, news came, or tidings came, word came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. That's literally what they did. They ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. It's helpful to understand the picture of Jerusalem. If you look at a map of Jerusalem, you see up in the uh, northwest part of the city, you see the temple area. And the temple area, if you're just looking at the temple area, on the north side of the temple, you see there are, there's, there's this fortress. It's called the Fortress of Antonia. And it was essentially the barracks of the Roman soldiers. And this, this particular barracks was raised up some 50 feet with turrets on the corners that raised up even higher. What would be the advantage of having an elevated barracks? You can see everything, absolutely. Keep in mind, it's right off of the temple. At a time such as this, the feast, when lots of people are coming in, this would have been high alert time for the Roman authorities. And so here they are, they're stationed just off the temple. And news comes to the commander. The commander, we find out later in chapter 23, his name is Lysias. And the commander catches the news of what's going on. And then they no doubt see what's going on. And they take a couple of the centurions and their troops, probably a minimum of about 200, probably more. But they come rushing down the steps. The steps, there were two stair, stairways that descended down into the area where the temple was. Imagine, picture all of these soldiers rushing down to the scene. Where this group of people have Paul and they're beating him with intent to what? Kill him. That's what's going on. That's the picture. And, and when the commander comes, notice what the people do. What they do when they see the commander and the soldiers? They stopped. They stopped. And the commander came near and he took him and he commanded him to be bound with two chains. To be bound with two chains. Remember that prophecy from Agabus? To be bound? He's, he's right now being bound. And the commander asked who he was. 
See, the commander had some thought as to who he was. We see that in verse 38. He thought he was this Egyptian assassin. He's trying to get at the bottom of who he was. But the way that the text is rendered here, not only is he asking who he was, but what he had done. Now this is, this is worded in such a way in the text that leads us to believe that the commander assumed Paul had done something wrong. Surely all these people doing what they're doing to him, he must have done something wrong. That's the assumption. They put him in chains. And you know, as I was thinking about this word to the commander, there were two thoughts that came out just in terms of application. Applying the text, thinking about the text in our life here. And the first one is this. Are you quick to offer a word to intercede for your brother in need? Somebody got word to the commander. Somebody got word to the commander so that the commander and his soldiers could come and help. And I think about that in our lives and how so often we're surrounded by people. Not only people in our own households, but people, we encounter people. People at our workplace, people in our neighborhood, in our communities. We're around people. And we hear of needs. And how often are we communicating with someone that needs to be communicated with to tell this person about a need, to tell this person who can help? I also thought about it from another perspective. As I was thinking about this fortress of Antonia mounted high on a hill just above the temple, I was reminded that even in the midst of Paul's desperate situation here, we have someone on high who is able to help. We have someone from on high who is watching, someone from on high who is willing to intercede for us. Oh, that was a praise, just to think about that. And we find ourselves in, in, in that sloth of despond in our lives, and we can know that in Christ we have someone watching over us, someone who never sleeps, someone who never slumbers. That's the God we serve. Well, the last few verses, we see a word from the crowd a word from the crowd. Some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. Boy, doesn't that sound like the trial of Jesus? The mob. The mob that gathered in Ephesus. Remember in the theater? Yeah, it said a lot of people came and some of them didn't even know why they were there. That's the essence of a mob mentality. They don't even know why they showed up. He's trying to get some understanding and some idea when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. Hey, this mob didn't just pipe down entirely when the, when the soldiers showed up. No, they're still grabbing him. I'm picturing grabbing him and trying to just tear off something off his... I mean, they're punching him, pot shot, all this stuff. 
And so much so they had to lift him up over the top of the soldiers. Picture this. They got him over the top and they're, they're trying to get him to the stairs. Now, we're talking a couple hundred soldiers. If this is truly a mob and, and there are, there are I'm, I'm guessing there are many more people than there are soldiers on the scene. And they're one at Paul. Verse 36. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! Hold that. Look back at verse 17, when Paul arrives in Jerusalem. The brethren received us how? Gladly. And now here we are, 19, 20 verses later. They're shouting, away with him. Let's be clear, when they shout away with him, they're not simply telling the Roman authorities, take him in the barracks. Get rid of him. No, they're saying, essentially, we could translate this, do to him what we really had intended to do. Kill him. That's what they're chanting. That's what they're shouting. That's what their desire is. Word from the crowd. Oh, that the crowd had the eyes to be able to see as, as Paul was, was able to see even in participating in that, that vow with those four men and participating in the purification, being willing to come under the laws and customs of the Jews that he might win the Jews, that he might show and model Christ to all. But you see, the crowd oftentimes so caught up in the frenzy, so caught up in upholding their own banners. The crowd can get carried away, can't it? With just simply ridding themselves of the one who, in their eyes, is causing all the problem. It's sort of ironic because the person in their eyes that's causing the problem is really the person who is upholding the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is manifesting in his life the truth of Jesus the one who is submitting to the people the word of God. It's not an unfamiliar story. Jesus himself said it. You've killed the prophets. I sent you prophets and you killed them. Jesus himself shared a parable, a story about God sending his own son and what they were going to do to God's own son. God's own son whom they didn't receive and they didn't accept. But he nevertheless told them. Church, the text opens the door and paves the way for Paul here in short order to have opportunity to speak one of three or four different occasions where he's going to be able to share his testimony. The Lord is with Paul through his journey to Rome. He hasn't yet declared to go to Rome, but that's where it's headed. There's a word of testimony. There's a word on the street. There's a word from these Jews from Asia. There's a word to the commander, praise God. 
And there's a word from this crowd, this angry crowd. Oh, that we would never be in that position to get so angry and furious that we forget our purpose here, that we forget our mission here, who it is we're serving. That we get so angry at flesh and blood that we miss the big picture mission of why God's placed us here. I believe the text today is a wonderful launch pad into these next several weeks. Paul is now officially a prisoner. He's been arrested. And I want you to see how God uses Paul the prisoner over these next seven chapters in the book of Acts. I believe it's instructive for us because church, we too were once prisoners, were we not? We were once slaves. Slaves to darkness, slaves to the evil one, slaves to the flesh. I won't lose the term, I'll keep the term, but now we are in Christ, slaves to God, are we not? Bond servants. It's not all that bad of a place to be, church, to be enslaved to the Lord Jesus Christ even in the midst of real chains. You see, because being chained hand and foot will never do damage and never take away the fact of my identity in Jesus Christ. And you're going to see this come about in Paul all along the way. Even as a prisoner, he's still able to voice who he is in Christ. No one can take the fact away that Paul is in Jesus Christ. And I, I pray we hold on to that church as we continue moving through Acts. Paul is going to represent for us this example to keep on living even in the midst of chains. Remember that we are in Christ. Don't lose that. Regardless of your situation, regardless of your circumstance. We're going to pray. In just a moment, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is really going to be a follow-up to where this ended. Because I think where it ended is a reminder in many ways of what happened to Christ. So we'll go over there in just a moment. But for now, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. And we thank you, Lord, for the instruction here in your text. I thank you for the Apostle Paul. I thank you for what you did in and through him. I thank you for his example I thank you for his courage, his humility, his boldness, his ability to speak and act in a way that pleases you, his ability to relate to people who maybe did things differently than him. Father, I thank you for his hope that he had in you. And I pray that we too would be a people that would Rest our hope upon you that no matter what comes our way, no matter what happens, Father, we can rely and be fueled and strengthened by the fact that we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That can never be taken from us. And for that, we're grateful. We thank you for your good word. and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.